in my house, cooking is a big deal. Um, Esther is a fantastic cook and uh, always has been. Takes it very seriously, like studies it and uh, and gets deep into it. And but it's created some funny situations. Um, and uh, one of them was years ago when we were newly married. Um, we were hanging out at some friend's house, and uh, and it was like a Bible study thing that had gone crazy late. It's like two o'clock in the morning. And Butch, my mentor, um, who loved Esther's pancakes of all things, like he was crazy about Esther's homemade pancakes. And so he goes, um, who wants pancakes? Two o'clock in the morning. Of course, we're all like, oh, <laughs> nothing has ever tasted, sounded better than pancakes at two o'clock in the morning. So we're like, of course we want pancakes. So he gets up and he's like, Esther, I need your recipe. So Esther writes down the recipe and he goes in, makes pancakes. <laughs> he makes one little mistake where Esther said, you'll use this much flour he thought that meant pancake mix. And so he, he uses that much pancake mix. And so he adds that in where the flour would be. And then he adds the baking soda in where the baking soda would be. And if you know anything about pancake mix, it already has the baking soda in it. And so he cooks for, for like 45 minutes. Huge, there's a bunch of people there. Huge stack of pancakes. The whole house smells like pancakes. He even heated the syrup. So the house smells like pancakes and hot syrup. Like it is, we are dying. He gets pancakes out. We pray. It's probably almost 3 o'clock in the morning by this point. We're all sitting around this huge table. We've all got huge piles of pancakes. And, uh, and we start eating. We pray. We start eating. And everybody starts, like, lips start going numb. And I don't know if you've ever eaten too much baking soda, but, it, like, it doesn't have as much of a flavor as, like, a feeling. I mean, you're like, something's not right here. Like, and, uh, and everybody starts looking at each other like, and we're starving at this point. And we're looking at each other like something went wrong. And Butch, he was like so stubborn. He's like, no, they're good. They're good. They're, they're fine. Just, you know, and I was like, Butch, come on, man. You could, you gotta be able to feel that, right? You gotta be able to tell something's not right. But anyway, wasted the entire time. He finally surrendered. I think he ate his whole stack because he was just like too stubborn to admit that he wasted all that stuff. But, uh, but yeah, recipes can go awry. In fact, we've got a, my oldest daughter, Hannah, um, who's not a bad cook. She's actually a really good cook. But she had like, she, I don't think she's ever made a good pan of cookies. Like she just cannot, she's butchered some of the easiest recipes. And one of my favorite moments um, when it comes to recipes, Esther was like super sick. I don't even remember what was going on, but she was like crazy sick. And it was making her like super stressed out because she had promised somebody she'd make cookies. And well, she'd actually promised all kinds of things. And we're like, hey, we got this. We're going to divide and conquer she'll do this, he'll do that. Like, we're going to get this stuff done. She was like, I was supposed to make cookies for such and such. I was like, and she was like <laughs> lethargic, like barely talking to us. She was like, she, you know, she's, I was like, hey, we're fine. We're going to get this all made. Well, I, he'll do that. I'll do this. Hannah's going to make cookies. And she goes, no, no, not, not Hannah. Not Hannah on the cookies. <laughs> like snaps out of a almost a comatose situation. And Hannah, of course, is standing there and just puts her head down and walks out of the room. Uh, yeah, so everybody knows Hannah can't make cookies, but but we're talking about recipes a little bit today, and that'll come in um, a little later. So we're going to dive in, um, and I do have to say uh, that this will not be a satisfactory study of Romans 8. We're going to dive into Romans 8. For us to do like a true study of Romans 8, we need to park here for like months. Um, this uh, This... Chapter is crazy deep and heavy. Like, and if you, if if you don't believe me, go home and read it. it, it there's a lot going on here. Um, it would take. For, this is like the kind of chapter you unpack in a in a small group Bible study or a Sunday school kind of thing. It would take a long time, and it would be way too heavy for um, Sunday mornings. We'd bog down. But um, but just by way of overview, Romans eight has some of the most like formative Pauline ideas. Um, 
it's like a theology stew. Like everything that is like really Paul is in Romans 8 and it's, and it's deep. In verses 4 and 5, he kind of lays out the Trinity. It's one of the most kind of Trinitarian verses and Paul is kind of majorly responsible for the theology of the Trinity. And he kind of lays it out very clearly in verses 4 and 5. He says, the law of Moses was able to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his son, so we've got father and son now, in the body, um, like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for sin. He did this so that the just requirements of the law would be, fulfilled, would be satisfied us. We've been talking about that um, for several weeks now, that, that the, the basic foundation of the law was if you sin, you die. If you sin, you die. Um, and so when Jesus died for us and when we joined him in that death as kind of demonstrated in baptism, it wasn't just God letting us off the hook. We had to fulfill that agreement. When you sin, you die. And with, in Jesus, we died. And so he was like, uh, in that sacrifice Jesus made for us, where we die with Jesus, we fulfill that, that requirement that if you sin, you have a death to pay. Um, he says, who no longer follow the sinful nature, but instead follow the Spirit. So you've got all three members of the Godhead, very Pauline, Trinitarian understanding um, right here in the book. You find all three members um, in their function, which is really important. Uh, you know, the Father did not die for us. Jesus died for us. The, the, the Godhead, um, each, each, uh, each member of the Godhead has a functional role to play, um, and you see them all um, in, this, in this passage, which is very Paul. Um, and, uh, but the full unpacking of the Trinity is very dependent on Paul's writings. We wouldn't really have an understanding of the Trinity without Paul like, and, and how they function. And so this is some key theology that he kind of drops right at the beginning of this chapter. Um, this chapter also dives deeply into the depth of what the, the fact that the entire creation was damaged by sin. Um, it's a passage that really doesn't exist anywhere else in the Bible. Um, we know from Genesis 3 that the creation was affected by humanity's fall. When God was explaining kind of the new way things were going to be, um, based on the, the humans choosing to follow their own way rather than following God's way. He tells the woman what her life was going to look like. He explains that the, the relationships were now going to be more difficult. Um, raising kids was going to be difficult. Uh, and then he finishes up with this statement. He says, and the man, to the man he said, since you have listened to your wife and ate the, from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat, the ground is cursed for your sake. Um, so not just, so it wasn't just the man being cursed. The actual ground was cursed. All your life will be a struggle to scratch a living from it. And so he basically, right at the beginning, said it's going to be hard to provide. And a lot of us, you know, we have that weird feeling when things just are so hard. We're like, why is it so hard? I've got to be doing something wrong because life shouldn't be this hard. Like, why can't I ever get in the flow and blah, blah, blah. And, and a lot of times we even blame God for that. Like, or we're looking for this magic formula. And God was the one that was said, hey, in a sinful world, making a living is going to be tough. Life's going to be tough. Raising kids is going to be tough. The relationship's going to be tough. It's supposed to be. And when it gets tough, we shouldn't turn on God. We should go, man, God is smart. Because he called this like 6,000 years ago. Um, like, this, this looks exactly like he said it was going to look. And so, uh, so, we, so we see it in the beginning that, that, that the ground was cursed. Um, but really, the full impact of that curse isn't really elucidated until Paul in this chapter. Paul, for the very first time, says, For all creation is waiting eagerly for the future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, all of creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in pains of childbirth right up to the present time. 
Um, not that this fully explains what happened to creation of the fall, but it seems that everything from bee stings to spider bites to damaging tornadoes and hurricanes to having to put your pets down when they get old and sick to colds and flus and cancers and tomato plants that grow big but won't produce any tomatoes, all of those things are part of it. All of those things are part of, uh, he was like from, you know, the, the ground is just not going to cooperate with you anymore. Nature is not on your side. And nature doesn't like that either. Nature's dying for things to be put right. The world was not supposed to be like this. And even the creation knows that it's not right. Um, I grew up watching nature shows with my dad all the time. And I'm, I'm pretty sure that every single nature documentary ever has the part where something eats something. And you just get to see how savage like nature really is, like how brutal it is. Um, there's always that kind of, it's, yes, it's beautiful and it's miraculous and it's inspiring, but it's also deadly and ruthless and full of pain. Um, like nature is brutal. And, and Paul makes the claim here that I think is really insightful. Human, humans, at least since the dawn of kind of secular humanism, have been searching for like a morality or at least an ethic um, that is rational and effective apart from God. Like there's got to be a rational way to live that doesn't require us to believe the Bible. Like, you know, you can, there's, there's a, a right way to live. We felt like if we can find the right political structure or economic system or even the right cause or lofty goal to agree on, we might be able to fix all our problems. Like that's kind of the underlying like thing is if we, if we would just vote for the right people and get things right, all of these problems would go away. That seems to be the promise that's under the surface. Even science is like, you know, studies show that if you eat this and avoid that, you'll be healthier and live longer. And then 10 years later, they're like, sorry, we had that backwards. You actually have to eat this and avoid that. Yeah, that's, that was wrong, what we said back there. But if you do, it'll fix all your problems. If you eat this certain thing, it'll fix all your problems. And it seems like the real um, impact uh, of the, the first round of all the things that were supposed to save us, uh, the, uh, the first round of all the things that were supposed to save us in climate change are just now starting to come like to full circle. Um, right now in Texas, they're the, the first wave of the huge windmills, you know, those big windmill farms are starting to break down and have to be replaced. And they're realizing the energy it takes to dismantle those and, and replace them. And, and the fact there's those, almost none of those are recyclable. So they're just getting piled up. They're realizing that any energy we saved by doing that is getting, is now, we're behind. We're behind. We're losing energy in replacing these things. And, and that seems to be the way everything is. Um, the, the, the impact of, of building the batteries necessary for, for electric cars is suddenly being revealed. And we're realizing some of the atrocities being committed to get the, 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 the elements out of the ground so we can make these huge batteries. I don't know if you've seen any of the videos of some of the mining, but it's all mined by humans, basically slaves. It's so fragile they can't go in with machinery. So they've got these huge, like, slave pits where they're bringing the cobalt out and the lithium out so that they can make batteries for electric cars to make our world greener. Like, so, it's like, all of our attempts to fix things, like, if we could just do this, we could fix things, and we don't really need God to do it. You know, there, I saw another one where they're, um, the impossible burger, like, you know, the, the ways, the, the, ant, the plant-based proteins, um, to make like one burger, it takes a five gallon bucket of peas to get enough pea protein. And so like to replace a cow, the size field you have to 
plow up and kill every small animal while you're plowing it up and, and spray with all kinds of chemicals so that you can get a little bit of plant-based protein um, uh, is, is way worse for the environment than a cow. You know, because they think that cows burp or fart too much or something and it contributes to greenhouse gas. It's some weird... Some weird thing, but is, and, and I'm not like, I'm not trying to say, like, do a political debate here, defend any of our old ways of doing things, because some of our old ways of doing things were terrible too. Like, we, we cause a lot of problems with some of the old ways of doing things. I'm just saying, while humans, the supposedly smart ones, are supposed to know better, and we're constantly hunting for ways to play God. We're constantly hunting, you know, while the dumb animals, according to Paul, are just crying out for God to fix things. Like all of creation is groaning for God to come and fix things because like the dumb animals know that's the only fix. We're out here going, surely if we can do this and do that and fix things, we'll, we'll set everything right and we'll redeem everything and we'll make it all good again. And, uh, and that just never pans out. Like we think we've got it for a little while and then it starts to reveal that no, we're, we're still broken. The brokenness goes much, much deeper than fixing some of our system. This chapter opens and closes. Um, uh, with some of the most encouraging scripture there is, uh, kind of like bookends. It starts with, there's therefore no condemnation for in Christ Jesus. And it ends with, I'm therefore convinced that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Like these two bookends on the chapter that are just crazy encouraging about how much God loves us. Almost like Paul knows the stuff in between is going to get challenging. You're going to need this encouragement on the way in and on the way out because we're going we're gonna to really dig in here. But the main thing, and we could, we, like I say, we could bog down. There is some crazy stuff um, in this chapter. But the main theme of this chapter um, is often overlooked. It's often missed completely because, I don't think it, we do it on purpose, I think it's because we get so bogged down in all of the, the other things that are available here that we miss kind of the main point Paul's trying to make. And that is the role of the Holy Spirit. Um, which very few people um, tend to, uh, to go here for that. But by way of comparison, in the previous seven chapters, Paul uses the, the word Holy Spirit, the word for the Holy Spirit, um, uh, four times before chapter 8. Um, in chapters 9 to 16, the whole rest of the book, he'll use it six times. Um, so ten times in the whole rest of the book, 22 times in chapter 8. Um, so it's, it, it seems to be that this is the heavy chapter on, uh, on, uh, on, on the Holy Spirit. He uses the word twice as much in this one chapter than he does more than twice as much in the whole rest of the book. And I think it's significant in a book this formative. And we talked back in week one of this study um, that the book of Romans is unique in Paul's writings because Paul never visited Rome. So there's no backstory. Every other book he wrote, he spent time in that city teaching. And so there's a, there's a, a foundation already laid when he writes them. So he doesn't have to go back and lay all the foundation again because he spent time with them doing that. Romans was not like that. It's unique. Paul never went to Rome. He has no idea what these people believe. And so when, what he's having to do in this book is to, is to make sure their theology is good, make sure what they believe is right. Um, and so that makes it kind of a unique book in his writings. And so it, it makes sense that in a book that foundational, he's got a chapter dedicated to the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It'd be weird if he didn't. Um, so, so in a book so fundamental, we know we need this, especially when he's like laying in the real guts of the gospel, which is kind of what we've been doing. It makes sense that the Holy Spirit would play a significant role in that story somewhere. Um, but unfortunately, chapter 8... Um, 
sometimes gets buried in all the other themes and we miss it. People tend to, to miss the key um, language here about the Holy Spirit and, and, and the role in the lives of believers. We tend to study the gifts of the Spirit from 1 Corinthians 12. A lot of people have spent time there um, understanding the gifts. Or we go to the fruits of the Spirit from Galatians 5, love, joy, peace, all the things, you know. Um, and we, we, we go to those two places if we really want to talk about the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And, uh, and people who are, they tend to kind of pit these two against each other sometimes. People who are uncomfortable with the gifts of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12 will say, yeah, but what's really important is the fruits of the Spirit. And people who, who don't feel like the fruits of the Spirit really show the power of the Holy Spirit enough, they, they, they were like, yeah, but what's really important is the gifts of the Spirit. And they, they kind of pit against each other. Um, but, but Romans 8 comes first. It's the foundational understanding of the role of the Holy Spirit. Romans 8 really offers the most formative, functional role the Holy Spirit plays in the life of believers. And, and unpacking that is our primary goal this morning. Uh, but before we get there, we, we have to do a little bit of review of last week because it's really, really important um, to truly get what's happening here. Um, and if you don't understand it, you can kind of get off on some of the stuff in, in Romans 8. So let's do that. Last week, Paul kind of um, led us to this really important revelation by asking four questions. Um, actually, over the last couple of weeks, in the early questions, Paul is is asking if we should just be allowed to sin um, since we um, since things are different now that Jesus saved us by his life, death, and resurrection. Um, and in those questions, when he's asked this question, should we just be allowed to sin? Um, sin sounds like a behavior, like an activity we do. Should we uh, be allowed to do this? This thing, And as Paul unpacks that idea, he eventually comes to the conclusion that um, though we shouldn't sin any longer because we're dead to sin, we still do. And, and even worse, though we've been freed to do the good that we were created to do and be what God made us to be, uh, we, we never seem to pull that off. We never seem to truly do the good that we want to do. Paul openly admits that he doesn't understand himself. He doesn't get it. He doesn't know why when I try to do good, I fail. And when I try not to do bad, I still wind up doing bad. He doesn't get it. And though he really does love God's law and really does want to stop sinning and do some good, it just never seems to happen. And Paul's conclusion is that sin must run deeper than my behavior. It must be something deeper than just what I do. The breaking of the law. Is bigger than. In fact, we decided that sin is a noun. It's something that exists deep in the heart of of humans. Sin is much more than an action. It's a brokenness that is that is already there, and the law simply reveals that to us. It'd be like looking in a mirror and realizing that you're ugly. Like you look in the mirror and you're like, ooh, and you know that like people don't like it's not good to be ugly, and so you don't like it. You don't like what you see in the mirror. But the mirror didn't make you ugly at all. The act of looking in the mirror wasn't a bad thing. It didn't, it didn't suddenly turn you ugly. And just because you, know, you didn't realize you were ugly until you looked in the mirror, that doesn't change the mirror. In fact, nothing in your life changed when you looked in the mirror except your realization. That's the only thing that changed is now you know you're ugly. And some people might think that if you try really hard to, to be pretty, the ugliness will go away. Like really work really hard at not being ugly. I don't even know how you do that. But if I try really hard, I won't be ugly. But the mirror doesn't lie. Other people might get mad at the mirror. 
and come up with all kinds of philosophical reasons why the mirror is oppressive and mean-spirited and, and, and shouldn't be honest. And, and the truly liberating thing to do is, is to never look in the mirror. Maybe even to outlaw mirrors. Not because that actually changes anything, but more because then we won't be aware of the way things really are. And what Paul is saying is that the law is that mirror. And this entire relationship between the law and our sin has nothing to do with the law. That looking in the mirror, it has nothing more to do with the law than looking in the mirror has to do with the fact that you're ugly. He's saying, you keep asking questions about how you should relate to the law and the rules and, and, and now that you're saved. And I'm just trying to tell you, Paul, not me, is trying to tell you that, that you're missing the point. It's not about the law. It's about you. It's about your heart. It's about what you look like in the mirror of God's holiness. And the only conclusion that makes any sense as you look in there is if you're ugly. That you have sin in your heart. That you have brokenness in you. It's part of who you are. We're selfish. I always, I always say this, like nothing convinced me of this more than having kids. My kids just came out wicked little sinners. Like I, I did not have to teach them to be selfish. I did not have to teach them to throw a fit when they wanted something. I didn't have to teach any of that nastiness. I didn't even have to teach them how to steal. Like if you say don't have a cookie, like you can see them light up. Like I'm going to get a cookie. Like I'm getting a cookie. Like I know I'm getting a cookie. I didn't have to teach them how to be disobedient. I didn't have to teach none of that. It came pre-wired. If I wanted any goodness in my kids, that's what I had to teach. I had to teach them to share. I had to teach them to be kind. I had to teach them to, 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 you know, hold back their natural desires, you know, for things. Like, any goodness has to be trained. The, the wickedness just came preloaded. Like, that was the, that was the, the operating system that came in the machine. Like, when, that's, and, and so, that's what Paul is saying. That's what the law does. We, we grow up and we learn how to cover it. We learn how to act in public. And, we, uh, and he's like, you spend time looking in the law, you'll see what's there. And, and, it, and it's not you breaking the law that, that is sin. It's you looking at the law and realizing. That's why Paul used covetousness. He was like, the law said don't covet, and I realized I was lost. I realized I just have this tendency to want things that aren't mine. It's just who I am. And nobody would ever know that. I can covet all day and no one's ever going to say, you wicked sinner, look at you coveting. No, I can do it secretly. Nobody has to know. And then I look in the law and the law says don't covet. And I'm like, oh, crud. Now what do I do? The law's like looking inside of me. How does it know what's in there? He's like, that's because all the law is is a mirror. I'm way off, Brett. Sorry about that. Brett follows my sermons. When I get off, he has to find out where I am. Um, so let's go here. And, and the way Paul comes to that conclusion is with the terrible, unsatisfying uh, statement that we made last week in verse 25. Um, so you see how it is. In my mind, I really want to obey God's law. But because of my sinful nature, I'm a slave to sin. This is how he wraps up the whole struggle with sin. Paul's big conclusion to how to handle this dilemma of sin is almost this painful surrender. A word-for-word translation actually makes it more clear. He says, so then, with the mind I myself serve the law of God... But with the flesh, the law of sin. And none of us want that. We're like, no, tell me how to beat this thing. He's like, yeah, here's how I beat it. I know with my mind I'm serving God. With my heart, with what I want, I'm serving God. But my body's weak. It's going to sin. Paul draws this distinction that some people call the old man and the new man. Uh, but what it amounts to is Paul saying, me, the real me, the heart, mind, soul, spirit, the part of me that came alive came alive when I put my faith in Jesus, serves the law of God and wants to serve the law of God. And 
That is the distinction, the distinct and separate thing from this old man, the sinful part of me. This part of me that I see when I look in the mirror. Those are not the same thing. And this dichotomy, as we talked about last week, is really important because it allows us to love the Word of God, the full Word of God, the unbent, unaltered, untwisted Word of God, even though we know we can't keep it. In fact, we, we, we can even believe in and love and desire a biblical reality like loving our enemy, turning the other cheek, praying for those who despitefully use you. Jesus told us to do all those things. And we can't. We, and, and we have this tendency to go, well, yeah, I, I know Jesus told me to love my enemies, but he doesn't want me to be a doormat. I mean, he would want me to stand up for myself. Even though he went like a lamb to the slaughter and told us to take up our cross and follow him. He didn't give us any outs. And so we have this tendency to like dumb down the law to something we can do in our flesh. Like, these are the important things. And then what Paul is saying is like, no, no, no. I can love the law of God, this beautiful picture that I hope the world is like one day, even though I know I have a really hard time loving my enemies. And only when we own that dichotomy that with my, with my will, with my mind, with my heart, I serve the law of God. I want a world where that's true, where people turn the other cheek and go the extra mile and, and share their, their coat and their cloak and, and forgive their enemies and love those who use them and forgive 70 times, 7 times. I want that world, but I also know I am not there right now because someone hurts me and, and I'm just not holy enough. And, and the, the last thing we want to do is, is go, because I'm hurt, I'm going to bring the Word of God down here so that I can say that I did it. So that I can say, well, this is what Jesus really meant. No, no, no. The Word of God is up here. It's beautiful. And I hope the world is like that. And I'm too weak to do it. And only that's what Paul is owning here. He's like, with my heart, my soul, I'm, I'm serving the law of God, even though I know I'm too weak to, to live up to that right now. Um, but we don't have to say that that the, the law is, is, is doable. And then we pick on the other people's sins. You know what I mean? While we're, while we're wiggling the law down to our level, we look at somebody else and go, yeah, those are sinners. Those people who do this, 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 and this. Paul's like, I won't do that. I'm going to keep the law up where it's, where it's too big for any of us to do, where it really shows me what's in my heart. Now, we can say with Paul um, that our mind, our heart, soul, wants God's Word, even though we know we can't do it. Uh, and this is really important in chapter 8 because Paul's going to make some distinctions between the one who lives after the flesh and the one who lives after the spirit. And if you just pull those out of their context, they're going to sound like two different people. Because um, he'll say, you know, he who lives after the flesh will die and he who lives after the spirit will live. And we have a tendency to go, oh, man, I want to be this guy. I want to be the one who lives after the spirit. But, but in verse or chapter 7, he establishes that, that each one of us are both people. That part of us, our sinful nature, will live after the flesh, and our our our, our new man, uh, redeemed nature, will live after the spirit. And that, yeah, eventually, that that makes that a beautiful statement because eventually that flesh one will die and will vanish and will be released from it, and the the part of us that serves God will live forever. Um, so it's really important to keep that in context as you study Romans eight, which I hope everybody will go home and read the whole chapter. I'm I'm skipping some things, and it's really good stuff, but man, it's too heavy um, for today. Um, so if we don't keep it in, in context of the whole book, this chapter can get um, weird. But the real revelation that we want to deal with today um, starts with this verse. It says, but you are not controlled by your sinful nature. You are controlled by the Spirit if you have the Spirit of God living in you. And remember that those who don't have the Spirit of Christ 
I'm living in them, don't belong to him at all. And Christ lives within you. So even though your body will die because of sin, the Spirit gives you life because you've been made right with God. The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Jesus Christ from the dead, he will give uh, life to your mortal bodies by the same Spirit living within you. Now, this is where Book of Romans really takes kind of a a very real, um, practical, supernatural, where the rubber meets the road um, kind of turn. Um, and uh, and here's what I mean by that. So far, the book has been really theological, like um, almost philosophical. Um, in other words, Paul has been mostly concerned with the generic realities of the gospel. Um, even though I keep stressing that this is the vertical, vertical part of the gospel, this is between you and God, your own relationship with God, and not necessarily how that plays out in the world, though we are going to get to that later in the book. Um, but even though we've been stressing that over and over again, there's still kind of almost a generic quality to the book um, so far. Kind of a universal quality of thought. You're a sinner. You are. But of course, the statement applies to everybody as well. Um, God sent his son to, to do what you could never have done for yourself. He died for you. That's for you. But it also applies to everybody that reads that as well. Um, and, and you were at peace with God in chapter 5. He dives into that heavily. But of course, that's a theological reality um, because of the cross of Christ. We are at peace with God, but we don't always feel at peace with God. And so sometimes we have to kind of mentally choose to believe that. Like it's, it's, it's kind of this generic reality that we have to decide whether or not we believe. Do we believe that or not? And then in chapter 6, Paul even says it right out loud. You've died to sin. Your job is to logizamai that. It's a Greek word that means it's your job to agree with that, to believe that, to reckon it, to, to make your worldview line up with that. And so he's kind of saying this is what is generic. This is the, this is the state of things. So what's been happening is that Paul's been kind of giving us the recipe of the gospel. This is the logistic. This is the breakdown. And some people love that stuff. Some of us need that stuff. Some of us really love to get into the nitty-gritty of that. In the culinary world, my wife is that way. She'll read recipes. She reads recipes very differently than I do. I read them like... Anybody else have that where a recipe sticks in your head for about three seconds? And so you go over and you're like, three cups of flour. Shoot. Three, three cups. Yeah, cups. Three cups. Wait. Okay, three cups. Why will that not stick even long enough for me to go over and, like, I have to read a recipe 37 times. Very mechanical. Drives me crazy. Um, Esther, especially if it's a dish she makes, she'll just read the recipe and be like, ooh, ooh, that sounds good. They're putting cinnamon with the cumin. Mm, that would make it so much heavier. And she'll, like, lick her lips. Like, she's tasting it. Just reading the words. Like, oh, man, that's so much darker and richer. I'm like, how do you know that? That's crazy. It freaks me out because it's like she's tasting it in her imagination. And I don't have the ability to do that. Like, I have to at least see it. If I see it, I'll salivate. But no, she can just read the words and like, ooh, mm, that's so good. I'm like, what? And some of us are like that in Paul. Paul gives us the recipe of the gospel and we savor God's grace in every word Paul uses. Uh, and then the movement of thought and, and all that is like exquisite in our holy imagination. Some of us are like that. We love the recipes. But in chapter 8, all of that theory goes out the window and things get real. And what I mean by that is, is we get to taste the dish for real in chapter 8. And for some of us, that can get spooky. Because he says, 
You're not controlled by the simple nature. You're controlled by the Spirit if you have the Spirit of God in you. This is the first time things are not generic. They're not theoretical. They're not the, you know, just in the abstract realm of theology. This is when he's going, what's going on in your heart? Do you have the Holy Spirit in you? With that one phrase, he takes this entire discussion out of the realm of the theoretical. And this is absolutely huge. This is the difference between Christianity and any other religion. And it's why I think this is essential to the gospel narrative. Islam, whether the zealous militant flavor or the more peaceful philosophical variety, however lofty it might get, never claims that Muhammad himself comes to live in you. It's not even part of their system. In person. Buddhism makes no such claim. Hinduism, no ancient religion or new age spirituality attempts to be more than a great way to live. And and I'm not judging, that's just, they don't even make those claims. What they, the claims they make are this is the way you should live. And, and maybe they'll see it as a divinely ordained way to live or, or just a, in Buddhism, it's more of just a, if you want to cooperate with the, the flow of the universe and, <clears throat> and things that go better for you and avoid as much pain as possible, this is how you should live. But none of them claim to be more than a way to live. Maybe even a way to attain heaven if you live this way, but still nothing more than a way to live. And something dangerous happens when Christianity gets reduced to a behavior system, to a way that you're supposed to live. When we begin to believe that faith in Jesus is mostly about what you do and how you talk and who you sleep with, or even worse, who you vote for, and when we allow ourselves to believe that faith in Jesus is mostly about a cause or bringing justice to the oppressed, it doesn't matter what form of behavior we're trying to institute, and no matter how admirable or elevated, because all of those can be great. I'm not saying any of those are bad. But if we begin to believe that our faith can be reduced to the way we live, then we are no different than any other world religion. There's nothing unique about us. They all have a moral code. And many are admirable. Many are really admirable moral codes. And if we allow ourselves to believe that Christianity can be reduced to a lifestyle, then the most we can hope for or hope to accomplish in any confrontation with another belief system is a debate as to whose is better. And that debate eventually becomes subjective. Secular humanism has just as good a chance to make good sense as Judaism or faith in Jesus. On on that scale. As much as the book of Romans lays out kind of the recipe of the gospel and every ingredient and every process. With this one statement here in chapter 8, Paul asks us if we've actually tasted the gospel. It's no more an idea. It's no more a debate. It's no more a uh, which is better. It's, it's do you have the Holy Spirit in you? Taste and see. And it's very similar to a famous conversation in John 3. It says there was a man named Nicodemus, a Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee. After dark one evening, he came to speak with Jesus. Rabbi, he said, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. And Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, unless you're born again, you can't even see the kingdom of God. Super famous conversation full of some of the most well-known verses in the Bible. And it starts with Nicodemus um, talking about the stuff that his crew has been hearing and seeing from a distance. 
Nick is like, we, we, we've heard you teaching, we've seen your miracles, the outward observance stuff. We totally understand that you come from God. So what's he saying here? Sounds to me like he's saying, like we've read the recipe. We've looked at all the ingredients. And it equals up to you come from God. You say good things, you do good things, we get it. You come from God. I mean, we haven't actually tasted it, but, but we listened. We watched from the fringes. And we know that it's something good. And Jesus' response is, Nick, you can't do this from the outside. You don't even get it. If you, if you listen to Jesus preach every day for his entire three and a half years um, that he did ministry on earth, and if you personally experienced um, basically every single miracle that he brought about during those years, you could still totally be on the outside. Case in point, Judas Iscariot did everything what Jesus the other disciples did and somehow stayed on the outside. Unless you were born again. In other words, unless you taste the food you don't understand the recipe. Unless something very real and very experiential actually happens to a person, you can't see the kingdom of God, Jesus says. This is not something you can get from the recipe. And Nicodemus and Jesus go on to talk about the, the nature of this birth and the key feature being this. Jesus replied, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of heaven without being born of the water and, and the Spirit. Humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. So don't be surprised when I say you must be born again. The Holy Spirit isn't just a member of the Godhead that happens to be present on earth right now because Jesus ascended into heaven. The Holy Spirit is the agent, the mechanism, and the, and the vehicle of the born-again experience. And maybe the least quoted statement in this entire conversation is actually one of my favorites. Um, you know, John 3.16 comes from this, you know, and everybody quotes that. You see it everywhere. But my favorite verse here is the one that almost no one quotes, which is verse 8. The wind blows wherever it wants. Just as you can hear the wind, but can't tell where it comes from or where it's going, so you can't explain how people are born of the Spirit. How many of you, honest survey, how many of you have heard someone tell you exactly how to get saved? Come on, give me a hand. Don't let me up here by myself. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, we do it all the time. If you'll repeat these words after me, you'll be saved. Right. And I, and I, I don't know if you've noticed in Romans so far, but Paul hasn't spent any time at all in his description of salvation telling you how. Other than faith. Like, you have faith. I don't know what that means. Tell me what to do. Like, you could almost say, like, he's been giving us the metaphysics of salvation. Like, this is what is like the reality of what humanity is like and the reality of God's response to that and the, the reality of what happens when you put your faith in Christ. He's even touched on how essential it is to, to receive righteousness by faith. He spent very little time explaining how that happens. It's almost like, like you know science has no idea how, what life is? Like they have no idea how life works. Like what, what it actually is. I've, I read this book called The 13 Greatest Mysteries in Science. It's kind of a fascinating read. And it's not like a Christian book. It's actually a, it's a secular book on science. And the guy is writing it from a scientific perspective. Like here are the areas to look for the next big discoveries because these are the areas where science is clueless, but they're looking hard. Um, and one of them is life. 
Like they're like, we don't know what life is. We don't actually know how to define it. We know how, we know how to define when you are alive. And we know how to define when that's not the case anymore. Like we know what changes, but we don't know what the actual mechanism of life is. Like you could take a living thing like an amoeba and study every element that's in there, every atom. And you can put all those exact same elements in the exact same ratios in another Petri dish and they can't make it come to life. Like they're like, we don't know why the one in here is alive and all the same stuff, all the same material in here is not alive. They don't know the difference yet. They don't, it's, it's one of the big mysteries. We don't know why, what spark is life. Like they still don't know that. They, they just know when it goes out and they know when it's there. Like they have definitions for those things. It, something changes, like it changes over time. It grows. It does it. Like they have all these definitions for how to know when something is alive. But we don't know what that actually is yet. What's funny is when, when, when Jesus made the statement to Nicodemus, science didn't have any of that kind of language. Like we didn't even know to ask those kind of questions back then. But, but Jesus basically says, uh, just like human life can give human life, only the Holy Spirit can give spiritual life. Like it, he almost talks in that same mystery. You don't know when it started. You don't know when it leaves. You just, it's just there. But one of the reasons why I think Paul um, stays theoretical and metaphysical in the book of Romans is because of that statement in John 3. We have examples in, in Bible and history of people with zero understanding of theology and doctrine and faith that were clearly born again. Jesus told the, the thief on the cross who didn't know any of the book of Romans. <laughs> it hadn't been written yet. He said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Like we had 300 years of people who, who didn't have a Bible and many of them were, were filleted or burned or, or eaten by lions because they would not give up their faith in Jesus. I'm not going to tell those people if I see them in heaven, well, you don't really qualify because you didn't understand the book of Romans. Like, they were like, what book of Romans? I was eaten by a lion because I wouldn't deny Jesus. Like, we have all kinds of evidence of people who had the born again experience and didn't have all the, the recipe. But they tasted and they got it. Jesus also said there'll come a day where people will come to him bragging about everything they did for Jesus. They'll be like, we did this, we did this, we did all these miracles in your name, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, but you never knew me. You were never born again. So in chapter 8 of Romans, when Paul adds this qualifying if, if you have the Holy Spirit living in you, this is not a perfunctory throwaway statement. This is Paul saying there's a ton of theology and maybe even logistics that go into why the gospel saves us. There's a lot to know. There's a lot to study. And Paul is willing to go there. Like, he goes there. He's like, this is the logistics of what happens because he knows some of us need that. But at the end of the day, there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Those in Christ Jesus. And another way of saying that is for those who are born again, those who are born of the Spirit. Those who have the Spirit living in this. Now this begs the question, how do you know? Right? How do you know if the Holy Spirit's living in you? I, mean, I think one of the reasons we like clean doctrines and, and a Christian worldview talk and, and even politics is that we can control our response to that. We have a list of truth statements or, or a list of platform points and we can say, yes, I believe that. So I'm in. We like that. It's clean. I believe everything I was told to believe, so I'm in. It's easy. 
It's even measurable. And better yet, we can use those same lists to decide who's out. Which we like that. We want to know who's in and who's out. We want to know who's going. Even though Jesus, one of my favorite parables, and we, 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 it's formative for us. He said, you know, planted a field and the farmer planted good seed. And an enemy came in and planted bad seed. And this is one of the parables where Jesus like explained every element of the parable afterwards. So there's no like mystery here. He told us what they meant. And and his workers came up and said, "Hey, whoa, there's weeds in with your with your wheat." And he said, "What do we do? Um, didn't you plant good seeds? Like I planted good seed, but an enemy must have planted bad seed right in with the good seed." And they're like, "What should we do? Should we pull up the weeds?" He's like, "No, no, no! Don't pull up the weeds. You'll tear up the wheat." Just wait till harvest time. We'll harvest them both. We'll separate them then. The weeds will be burned. The wheat will be eaten. And then he comes in and he's like, the wheat is the, is the good people, like the saved people, the born-again people. The weeds are the, 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 those sowed by the enemy. And like he, he breaks it all down. And how much of church history has been spent trying to separate weeds from wheat? Like trying to figure out who's out and who's in and who, who doesn't qualify and who does and, and if you believe all the exact, and I think we've done more damage to the wheat trying to do that than we ever have to the weeds. We've torn each other up. We've, 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 churches have hurt churches. We've got churches that, that pick on other churches and, and it's horrible. And, and Jesus made it very clear that wasn't supposed to be the plan. We grow together. It's above our pay grade. Let him sort it out. You don't have to do that. That's not your job. That's not my job. Our job is to grow and, and be close to him. Anyway, none of that was in my notes, so we're going to start going long. <laughs> Remember what Jesus said about having the Spirit living in you. He said, you can't explain how people are born of the Spirit. And isn't that frustrating? But there is one statement in this verse that I think resonates strongly in both John 3 and Romans 8. It doesn't clear everything up, but in my opinion, it does make Romans 8 as important a passage about the Holy Spirit as the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5 or the gifts of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12. Because Jesus says this. He's talking about this metaphor of the wind, and he says, just as you can hear the wind, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it's going, so on and so forth. Jesus says when it, when it comes to wind, you can't know where it came from, you can't know where it's going to end, but you know when it's there you know when it's there. When it's there. Jesus doesn't say, you know, you have to know anything else. So Jesus doesn't say you, 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 you can't know is there, you know, if you're born of the Spirit. He just says you know. You just know. You know when it's there. There's no question. And now listen to what Paul says about the Holy Spirit in Romans 8. He says, From his, for His Spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. And I think this is the primary role of the Holy Spirit in our life. Translation, you might not know exactly when the Holy Spirit showed up. You might not know exactly where you're headed. But the Holy Spirit makes himself known. That's the job of the Holy Spirit is to confirm with our spirit that we are God's. Long before the Holy Spirit starts to produce fruit in your life, and long before there's a manifestation of any spiritual gifts, the Holy Spirit's job is to affirm within you that you are a child of God. To join with our own spirit, and not to put too fine a point on it, 
but to make us know that we are God's. To make us feel saved. I'm going to share my own opinion. Denominationally, I'm, my background is thick and convoluted. I'm a mutt, for sure. I was raised Catholic. And then when I left the Catholic Church, I spent many years in charismatic churches. Um, and then as I studied, I grew more uh, toward kind of reformed and theological directions. And spent a few years in, in like a real social justice-driven church. Um, worked with a lot of homeless friends and liberals. Um, <laughs> not necessarily the same people. Um, and I, I still retain a lot of the elements of each of those um, on my journey. But I also moved from each one for very real reasons. And maybe the most frustrating thing about it is the way that they, they, they deal with the Holy Spirit, especially the kind of the charismatics and the more reformed churches. Charismatics tend to dwell on evidence, usually speaking in tongues and, and, and the flashy things about the Holy Spirit. And, and they dwell on this like second experience kind of thing. And, and this unfortunately skips right over Romans 8. which I think is essential to the gospel. I think the Holy Spirit confirming to our own spirit that we are a child of God is far more edifying than, than, than fruits or gifts or anything else. But equally frustrating for me is, is the churches who believe the Holy Spirit is simply like to be acknowledged doctrinally. And as long as you kind of mentally agree with the concept of the Holy Spirit, then you're fine. And if you don't feel like a child of God, then you just check this doctrinal list. And as long as you line up, then you just check it by faith. And frankly, that's not what Paul is describing here. That's not what Jesus was describing in John 3. Paul is describing a very real experience. The Holy Spirit making his presence known to you. Evidence, if you want to call it that. And frankly, though, I think everything in Romans is really important to having kind of a strong and healthy relationship with God and with others. Um, this is key. You can't really understand any of that other stuff. You're like Nicodemus going, I see all the, I see all the things. It all makes sense. This is all true. But the Holy Spirit confirming with your own spirit that you are God's. This is not an academic question. It's, a, it's an experiential Question. And Paul goes so far as to say this. Even though we have the Holy Spirit within us. Uh, okay. And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us, as a foretaste of future glory. Paul's talking about the day when Jesus is going to come and everything, like everything, creation, all the animals, the damaging weather, the sickness, our, our own sinful natures, everything is going to be set right. Paul says that we believers basically groan for that day. Like we look forward to the day when everything will be fixed and set right. But until that day, we can at least experience and taste some of it in the Holy Spirit. When you feel the goodness, the grace that the presence of the Holy Spirit brings, that feeling... I believe that's the right word, feeling. That feeling serves as a taste of the heaven we look forward to. He's like, we, we groan for something better because we have this foretaste, this, this, this down payment, this earnest. So if you, don't, if you don't experience, like feel, experience the presence of the Holy Spirit inside you, then heaven isn't likely to... to uh, 
to feel as real to you as it should. Because the Holy Spirit is supposed to be that foretaste, that earnest, that down payment, that appetizer for the real thing. Romans 8 is hugely important to the believer. Because this is where you, your, your own experience gets involved. Not just your mind and your intellect, but your real life experience. And Paul bookended this chapter with some of the most encouraging scriptures there is. He said there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And he closes with the fact that nothing can separate us from God. And all of that security and comfort hinges on only one thing. If you have the Holy Spirit living in you. Are you born again? Are you a child of God? So how do we respond to this? I've got to move super fast. I've just been rambling. We used to host a special night in our youth group. Um, we used to call Doubt Night. And we would just let kids bring the worst questions they could come up with. doesn't matter. You don't have to be churchy. You can ask anything, anything you doubt, anything you struggle with, anything, anything. And I came ready to talk about evolution. I came ready to talk about sex. I came ready to talk about hypocrisy in the church. Like I thought we were going to have these like deep, crazy. The number one question I get, how do I know if I'm saved? Almost all, like 75% of the questions were, how do I know though? Like how do I know if I'm saved? And since then, I've, that's, that hasn't changed. That's the primary question people ask me. How do you know? And I think, I think we miss it because we fail to ask the Holy Spirit for that very thing. That's what the Holy Spirit is supposed to do for us, is confirm with our spirit that we are children of God. And if we don't know, we need to ask for that. So the way that I'd love to respond to this message as we gather around the table is to ask for that. Holy Spirit, reveal yourself to me. Confirm with my spirit that I am yours. Let me know that you are here. And if you're not from a background that does that, don't freak out. Don't make it weird. I'm not asking for some like crazy charismatic moment here. I'm not looking for any particular response at all. I'm just saying that is the job of the Holy Spirit. That's why the Holy Spirit there is to confirm with us that we are God's. And we should ask for that. We should beg for that. We should say, I need to know you're here. I need to know I'm yours. The Holy Spirit is not a concept or a doctrine. The Holy Spirit is God. And we're supposed to have an intimate relationship with God. And many of us have gotten so tangled up from church backgrounds as what it means to, to ask for the Holy Spirit that, that we either, it comes with too much baggage. Drop the baggage. Just say, Paul says the Holy Spirit is supposed to, to confirm with my spirit that I'm a child of God, and I want that. I want that. Jesus, when talking about this very thing, said, you fathers, if your children ask for a fish, you don't give them a snake instead. If they ask for an egg, you don't give them a scorpion. Of course not. So if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? We get so afraid we're going to get something weird. He's like, come on. This is God you're talking to. God's not going to make you do something wonky. Beg for the presence of the Holy Spirit. He's your Father and wants to give you good things. So as we gather around the table and sing one last song and, and, and gather for communion, just take a minute. Just take this time as the music plays, as we line up to go, Holy Spirit, I need you in my life. I love all the ideas. I love all the deep thoughts. I love all the real things. But 
What I need is to know you're here. I need to experience you. I need to taste and see that the Lord is good.